Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us live from locally Phoenix, Arizona, is Denali Stricker. She's a former archaeologist turned licensed mental health counselor with a focus on trauma, suicidology, and grief. Um, I'm very interested to ask her lots of questions about all of that, but also about what she thinks about life and death and how she's living her life. So let's welcome Denali to the show. Hi, Denali. Hi, good to be here. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to have you. So I usually ask guests the same basic three questions at the beginning of the show, which is, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Okay. Um, I grew up in Rochester, New York. I'm 41 years old, and I always thought I was generational X. But turns out I'm actually the cutoff for millennial. But I, I certainly, with music, identify with generational X. Yeah, yeah. That's a, <laughs> I'm 40, and so I totally understand. It's a weird age group. That's cool, though. So uh, what brought you all the way out to Arizona? The pursuit of, of adventure. I had gotten my degree in anthropology with concentration in archaeology and kind of taken some odd jobs in both Rochester. For a while, I worked at the uh, Museum of Science Center there. I think that's what it's called. Um, and then also in Buffalo. But with the winters and with the way things are preserved back east with acidic soil, not a lot of things get preserved. So a lot of the stuff we would go out and looking for was like stuff from the 60s, which can be cool or like checking out old farmhouse before they would uh, bulldozer it for plazas and so forth or other housing developments. So federal law says that archaeological team has to go in and survey the land to make sure they're not building any historical um, remains or evidence. So that's that's how they kind of stay employed and through contracts. But there was never really a steady gig to it and you would, you know, it would be based on projects. And so it, well, it wasn't kind of my my area too of interest is interesting as I do find but I liked a lot older and a lot of the Native American stuff had pretty sure has been too well buried or picked over in the east coast and so my brother was coming out here for golf school in Arizona and I never even considered living in the west coast I was so acculturated just being east coaster like I didn't even think about that and I was like oh well Okay, well, I'll do it. I just packed up my stuff, really didn't have a plan, and drove out here. Had no idea or plan of the city. And within a, a couple of days, found a job. And Arizona is definitely a spot for archaeology. So I had a, a great introduction to doing some good archaeological work out here with the Hohokam Village while they're putting the light rail in at A Mountain. Wow, that's so interesting. I have so many questions to ask you. My brother is actually uh, also an archaeologist or... Well, he's a teacher, but his undergrad and master's was in archaeology. And it's interesting because he did field work in Ithaca, and so did another friend of mine who's actually been on the show. Uh, and she's also – she's anthropology. Um, so I'm curious, like, what is – is upstate New York, like, actually renowned in, like, the world for that? Or is that just something that I'm noticing as a coincidence? Um, I mean, it could be a coincidence, but also there's so much history when you grow up in the East Coast or, you know, I'm sure every place. But, you know, Rochester, Buffalo, Ithaca, it, it have so much – history and culture and it's changed so much in the relationships to how America even started the founding fathers there's a place where I live called Council Rock where the Native Americans would would meet there from the five nations and I don't want to misquote anything but I think I do know Benjamin me with Benjamin Franklin 
um, where he would take ideas from that and put it forth into the Constitution, you know, and, and how to have diplomacy. And so there's just so much history. And I love just the the kind of romanticism of how people used to live and architecture and Victorian style. So th- there's just so much there's so many roots you feel it's like if you've ever been to europe it feels even older and and i've always had this connection to things that are dated or antiquated and and i even felt more at home when i spent some time in europe so it's definitely been kind of a culture shock coming out west because i don't have that same feeling even though i you know worked on hohokam um settlements i just never really connected to the west and and um, or maybe related to it. I'm not sure. No, yeah, that's fascinating. Do you, do you feel, when you say you feel like a connection, are we talking about like a logical connection or is it like something more like metaphysical or intuitive or, you know, something other? That's a great, great question. Uh, it, it definitely feels more spiritual. Like there's a part of you that might be an old soul or that you maybe could see yourself living in a different time or even imagine what it's like to live in a different time and like who you would be as a person or handle conflict or situations. So I I think it's more of a curiosity for me, but also there is an unspoken feeling that I I can't place. You just kind of chase after it. You're just, you know, this idea to give life to something that's been long gone. has always been a a huge interest to me. Maybe it's part of our idea that we always want to be mortal. Maybe the Egyptians kind of started that with, they never wanted to die. And they came up, came up with this fanciful way of living based on how they were going to spend the rest of their eternity. And they focused on that as, as their religion, Um, which is interesting because growing up Jewish, it's such an opposite philosophy and perspective, but I I think at the root of everything and what kind of, led me also into the psychological field other than personal things was just again that that curiosity that sense of connection of how we try to manage everyday life and what we turn to to look for relief and certainly religion and culture can answer that question wow yeah you strike me as a kind of odd almost contradictory combination of like because you're in two fields of science like mental sciences and then also archaeology both of those to me are very like scientific materialism type like endeavors. And then you're also talking about like being raised Jewish. I don't know if you still are. And I'm going to ask you that later, I'm sure. Uh, and then like the spiritual thing. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, does that ever, um, is that ever difficult for you? Like, is that, is it hard in your field to give space to both? Um, no, I guess it, it's never really come up as, as a question. Um, it's, it's been more so about the pursuit of personal truth that would set somebody free from the anguish that they're living in, right? Which is typically like we grow up, we we have these experiences and we don't necessarily have the language tools to have self-expression um, to really process it. And if we don't have the right support to help us process it, then we internalize it or it can become negative or kind of poison our bodies and mind. And then this memory stays with you and throughout life. And it can lead to all sorts of different um, negative coping styles and mechanisms that, that come out. And then plus at some point, everybody has some kind of trauma. So that trauma can then um, reopen some of these earlier ways of how you feel about yourself or how you live. Um, so to kind of tie back to archaeology, I, I always kind of joked that, you know, I used to dig in the dirt and now I dig in people's minds. And the only difference is, right, when one is about the past and physical and one kind of now is, is more about the present and living. 
but I think the idea behind it is is still the same. It's just this this wanting to connect and understand and and bring out the truth of what was and what is. Um, and and because a lot of times you just don't have those tools. Yeah, and actually, I want to ask you a question that I constantly ask uh, myself, but I'm always like afraid to posit it into like general society. But since you're actually like an expert, I feel comfortable asking you. So um, trauma to me is like such a popular word now and such a popular concept. And I'm not saying it in a derogatorily way, like derogatory way. I, I do think it's real and it, and it matters. But I'm curious, like, is there actually any study or any evidence that like the size of the trauma will affect how much it affects the person? Or is it possible that like, if your trauma is like, you know, the pee in the mattress was so unbearable when you were a four year old that like, that's the rest of your life, your burden versus like, a four-year-old who was like inappropriately touched by an adult like it, it, do you understand what i'm trying to ask yeah yeah i think you're talking about kind of your biology right and everybody has a different allele copy of how they handle um stress or resilient like we by nature are resilient you know and there's a saying that you have to go through difficult times to grow and crisis can often help you do that um but i also think you know, genetics is like 90% of the battle and then environmental, the whole nature versus nurture. And if you have, you know, a poor copy of resilient by nature, and then your environment is also extra stressful, then something like the pee becomes a mountain. Whereas for somebody else, the pee is just kind of, you know, you kind of brush it off. And you can see this just in personalities, like how sometimes people just are really able to roll things off and they don't really have this visceral strong reaction to something or um or they do and you can't you can't plan for it and you can't um talk yourself out of it and you can't choose it so like for example um i've been out here in a couple like car wrecks right one was potentially pretty scary but like it didn't phase me and i was surprised by that and then it never stopped me from wanting to get back in a car, you know, and even the cop said, he's like, this is a really bad accident. It was like a four car pile up type of thing. Um, and I had like a laceration on my arm and, and, it, and nothing broke, but it just like, I didn't, I didn't have any problems sleeping at night, you know, and it's just weird because then there was two other times where I had some really bad PTSD from almost what I perceive as drowning in Hawaii when a wave pinned me. And then when I crashed my motorcycle and it took, it took a lot to like, so, so for 90 days, generally if somebody goes through a traumatic experience, it naturally can help you work through that just through time of 90 days, you know, to get over the kind of the initial shock of it. Um, how you process it, of course, can, cause it to linger and become more complex and and take on other grief um but if you kind of work with a therapist or talk to somebody and gain some perspective on it early on um or even do something um that i'm trained to do called uh, emdr it's based based on somewhat of exposure therapy so again how you allow your body to process something out and how your body holds on to something and internalizes it is not really for you to decide or to choose. It's just kind of happens, right? But then you have to do the work to kind of figure out like how to move forward with it. And the answer is to why it happened or that just kind of brings you deeper into the hole. So I always try not to ask the question why, because we don't know why there, there necessarily isn't a why, but how, what, and 
you know, where do we go from here is, is generally kind of what we focus on, on in that. But when, when trauma does happen, um, and again, for whatever reason, how a person's body holds on to it, because the body keeps the score, which is another great book, if anyone's interested in reading about trauma, um, it, it generally is coupled with kind of this unconscious negative cognition that you have about yourself that you might not even be aware of. So it could be if you're in a car accident, you're about to crash, you think, I'm going to die, right? And so for whatever reason, the body holds on to that. And every time you see that same intersection, and maybe this happened when you were a baby, you don't remember it, you kind of like cringe up or you get angry or um, you avoid it. You just can't get in the car even anymore. Um, or if you've had little traumas that aren't specific events, which are the can lead to the more complex traumas is could be like childhood neglect or being bullied or you know just certain things that that overwhelm your your psyche and development little instances that certainly affect you that become complex and you might hold a host of unconscious cognitions such as like I'm worthless or I'm not good enough I don't like myself I can't be good I can't trust myself so then when something happens later on like you fail a test, you know, somebody who maybe has a healthier self-development or had better resiliency or support early on to have a better outlook on themselves might be like, oh, I'll do better next time, right? I'll, I'll be okay. But somebody else who might have had these little trauma episodes over and over might think, oh, well, now I'm going to be a loser the rest of my life. I'm never going to amount to anything. Why try everything I do? I can't do this anymore. And and that's how these things end up leading into even suicidal thoughts, right? Because there are no other options or understanding to be had. It's just a way to get away from the pain that's built up. And the then that without these other constructive coping tools to kind of work through these visceral experiences that can come up through your day-to-day, -day, right? It can kind of lead to that fire internally. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to try to connect like three different strings or threads that we've been kind of dancing around. And I also want to ask you what you think happens when you die. So first, before I ask that pivotal question in the interview, um, you've talked about biology, you've talked about mental health, and you've talked about archaeology. You also talked about like a soul, you use that word. So I'm curious, do you believe the soul is biological? Is there a, uh, like, or someday could science like detect the soul? And then my corollary to that would be, does the soul have trauma? Um, okay, so first question, is the soul biological? In your opinion, obviously, yeah. In my opinion, you know, I think you first have to define what the soul is. And I feel like, as I kind of express that now, it's kind of the essence of who you are underneath your persona underneath your experiences um and maybe it's a thing that drives us maybe it's a thing that helps us connect to life or this bigger spiritual world that we have it's it's um is it is it separate from our biology i don't know you know is it um, part of just being a human being that is our biology like I, yeah i think these are the age-old questions that are just very difficult to to answer um and then i'm sorry what was the second question uh, the second question would be, uh, does trauma like carry into the soul? Like, does a soul have trauma? There's that, you know, that that's a really interesting one because they've done a lot of like studies about historical PTSD that what your ancestors went through. Um, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but I don't know if it was like stored in uh, RNA um, or it was parts of like the DNA, but 
you know, then people have these experiences sometimes where they say that they've, you know, they, they reincarnated or they, you know, I, I don't, I've never had that experience, so I can't speak to it, but, or some people feel like they're an old soul. Um, but, you know, I, I think if you speak to it from a biological standpoint, you know, trauma causes stress in the body to be released and cortisol and cortisol can take, you know, uh, a day, if you know, or several hours for it to metabolize out of your system. And if you're not relaxing and you're constantly in this fight or flight response, then it stays up, right? And it then messes with your whole biochemistry and suppresses serotonin and, um, and so forth. So then you're even more like fight or flight for the next thing to come on. Um, and so if that rewires the system, you know, or that becomes kind of your presentation in this world where you're constantly in fight or flight, you're always in survival mode. And then you have a baby, you know, that there's even suggestion of what's going on in the pregnancy that can affect the hormonal state even of, of the baby. Whether or not that gets taken on in, in part of DNA or it just influences kind of the hormonal part or personality, I think those are just continued research questions that would be very interesting to, to answer. But I can't say for sure the answer to these things because I, I just don't know. But I'm certainly curious if these are like my hypotheses about it. Uh, no, that's awesome. And so speaking of which, I would love for you to answer the uh, only other question we ask every guest, which is, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? So what's your journey? What's your experience like? Uh, it's, it's definitely evolved since since I was young. Um, and I, I never thought there was, I, you know, and I don't know if this is because of early childhood experiences, um, or again, if there is a DNA component, which if you look at religions across the world, there seems to be this need for something higher to connect to or to instruct us or to get through trauma or to deal with like the difficulty and struggle of what life is. And maybe it keeps people together. Maybe again, it keeps, it's what hope is, right? If you don't have hope, you know, you, you can die of a broken heart. Um, so I had this feeling that there was no God when I was like five and looking back, I think it had a lot to do with just the environment I was in. And when I see people that believe in God or they have a strong connection, they generally have supports or grew up with supports in their life that they felt cared for and wanted. So when you start questioning your whole existence of why you're alive at such an early age, um, because of your environmental experiences coupled with your biology, um, you know, it just led me to this conclusion, well, there's no God, you know, type of thing. Um, but that's, again, you're trying to say something for certain, which nobody can really say for certain. It's like, unless somebody told you that gravity was a thing, you didn't know how to describe it. It's just something that exists. You can't see it. You just understand it through somebody's interpretation of it or just somebody's, you know, labeling of what it is. So we can't see what God is. So I think it, it is a personal journey and and what the definition is i don't really know i I think i'm smart enough to know what that means but i've taken on more of an agnostic view that i can't claim knowledge of one thing or another and i'm kind of of the mind that um when we die we'll find out you know and i don't know had some experiences you know with with uh with grief and 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 death and um a special relationship specifically one of my dogs dying and uh, the profound grief that I went through with that. But also it was the first time 
maybe it was the second, maybe even my grandparents, that I experienced, and I don't know if this is part of the healing part of the mind to deal with grief, but little things would happen, you know, and I don't know if you're more keen to looking for signs that they're still around, but just stuff that had never happened before that seemed to be pretty common play for people that lose um, people or animals or in their life like a bird hitting the window, you know, or hypnagogic hallucinations where you hear voice um, or the timing of something, you know, something happening, you know, when you're thinking about it. And, and so I started to have those experiences, you know, with, with a loss of, of this, this particular relationship. And it just made me question, like, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe there is some kind of energy in you of what the soul is, if the soul is energy, they say when, when an egg and a sperm meet, there's actually some kind of um, spark that happens, you know, is that when a soul comes in? I mean, from your Jewish belief, their souls cannot be created or destroyed, or there's, there's a certain amount of them, and then they reincarnate, you know, uh, that maybe the soul's on a journey, and it wants to go through all these experiences, because it's bored, and it's like, well, this time I'll be an ant, or this time I have to be this way, and so, I mean, these are all ways that humans, I think, try to explain or find comfort or understand, you know, what's going to happen to them. Nobody wants to feel like they don't want to be here anymore um, when they are in, in such a feeling of awe. You know, it's just like, oh, I don't ever want to miss something or they have like a serious case of FOMO. <laughs> reasons to like really explain like what death is. And for me, I just, I don't know. I always think about it. And it's like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. But then coming from a Jewish background, that was never the focus of life. And and kind of life is about, you know, Taki Olam, trying to make the world a better, a better place. And it's it's focusing on what we can do today um, and, and appreciating what we can do today because life is ephemeral. You know, isn't that why, why we give flowers? Because they're only beautiful for a little bit. Otherwise, we wouldn't cut them. We'd let them stay on the bush. But we cut them and we you know and only enjoy them for a short amount of time. So, you know, I think when people find things that give them purpose in life, um, and you can be appreciative and take time to really notice those things, that's what gives you meaning and that's what makes life worth living and that that's what makes you want to hold on to it. And I think when you know, I, I like to tie it back to you know, stuff that I've learned from, from archaeology and just kind of looking, what always intrigued me about the Egyptians is like, like maybe they felt that too, where there's times where life was just so miraculous or they'd look at their, their son or daughter and just be like, I got to be around forever now, you know, or I really enjoy these, this food I have, or, you know, you have these pleasurable experiences and then you feel really high or good about yourself and, and you just, you want it to last forever, you know, this idea and it's, to not to not have that so this idea it's almost like we have this this ego or this the sense of self-importance that it's just a nice idea that we're not going to cease to exist or we're more special than we are and and i struggle with like meaning versus nihilism I, I think about this all the time and i know that you're also you're raising two young children right now um and my wife and i who you're friends with are raising one young daughter and i already raised a son uh up until he was about two and so I've already gone through this process that I'm now going through again, where you're like constantly telling a kid, like, you have a name, you're a human, this is you, like, right. remember your name. And then like the next phase after this is, and you're so special and, and your voice matters and you're, and like, we fill ourselves up with this. And then like, 
around like 12 or something, people are like, hey, would you shut up? No one cares. You're not that special. And especially at 18. So what do you think about that? all that? Especially because you're, you know, like me, you're doing it. Right. Uh, I mean, my hope, like, like my hope was always to kind of create a critical thinking environment where and, and I and I think I took this from um, a comedian, or maybe it was Chris Rock, I don't remember, but he was just saying, like, he tells his kids how special they are, but he lets them know when they walk out of the out of the door, like, nobody cares about you, just know that. I do remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of held on to that as I was like, like, they're right, like, like, I what's important to me is because I didn't grow up with a healthy sense of self-esteem because, you know, back in the eighties and how it was like lock key hands off parenting and nobody, you know, really care what you were going through. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I didn't want, I don't want my kids to go through that. So like I'm pumping them up, but I also don't want to raise, um, narcissists. And I can totally see that with like a three-year-old that I have right now. And I don't know if it's probably just one of their phases, but, but you know, it, I think when the time is right and they're able to have more critical thinking skills, like I really hope to have those conversations with them that, you know, you don't want to take away from that. They are, we all are unique, right? All of our DNA is unique in this world, but it's the meaning with that we give that, you know, in terms of what we do with it. Do we want to be humble and, and have humility with it or do we want to use it to flaunt over other people or feel extra good about ourselves? So I think it's always finding that balance because everybody has an ego from time to time. And it's kind of just questioning where that ego is coming from or and how you want to use it. You know, you can be a jerk to somebody about it or you can recognize that you just got really lucky in life and you've got great brain chemistry and support systems and you want to pay it back and just be a kind person. Wow. So I'm just hoping that in my, <laughs> that my my kids are able to recognize when they have a hot head and when they don't, because I grew up in a very hot headed competitive family. And, um, I don't, you know, it's, and it's always a work in a process in my own work is to catch myself when, you know, I'm wanting to be extra competitive or, or show off or, you know, just be like, wait a second, like, you know, what are you really achieving out of this? What are you trying to get? It's so fascinating to get to know someone over a podcast because the last adjectives in the world I would use to describe you are like hot-headed or competitive. Right. But like, you're obviously a little bit of both and you're admitting it and telling me it. So it's like funny because like, I'm sure if I talk to your best friends or your husband, they'd be like, oh, no, no, that's like obvious. And so it's just so interesting to me that we, uh, not that you hide it, it's the opposite. It's that you control it well. But, but. But that's only a small, like, I'm just saying that, like, that's a small part. That's, that's largely not how I describe myself at all. I'm quite the opposite. Like, I have generally zero comments, you know, and that's, that's also kind of what led me into the field of psychology is dealing with a lot of depression growing up and, and my own personal struggle with, you know, suicidal ideations when I was younger. But there's times it comes out, you know, and that's always been interesting to me is that when you're alone, that's when kind of the demons come out and then, you know, in your histories, but when you're on other people, like another force takes over sometimes. So we're just complicated, complex people. And, and I think we love to categorize people or put them in these categories or diagnose them and say this, this, and this. And all of that does is confine you and label you. And then you can't grow out of that. So it's again, going back is like being critical thinking, you know, is that we love to label things as human beings. We love to have, like be super organized and label and document everything right but but it kind of loses its creativity or to to become something else um so again that's just kind of what i want to i hope for my for my kids who you know have to deal with me sometimes which isn't always easy that you know we take on 
uh, since the, the way that our parents talk and um, the way that we look at the world. And, and I remember growing up, based on what your parents' political ideologies were, you were kind of that too. You know, when you're in third grade, you're like, oh, my dad's yeah. mom's a Democrat or a Republican. And, <laughs> and you're like, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm with them. You know, and you don't really have your own thoughts. So you kind of just like become your parents for a while. And that becomes your persona until you, you break, you, you break away. But so when they break away, I want them to have good critical thinking skills so they can look at their parents and be like, you know, what, my parents did this really well. And then they didn't do this really well. And I and I know not to be a byproduct of the thing they didn't do really well because I recognize it's about them and not me. Yeah, that's so that's so cool. Yeah. And so like with trauma, it's like we think it's about us. You parents get divorced. You, you blame yourself. Your parents yelling at you because there's a big, scary, huge person and they're having a rough day and you're not behaving. And then they like lash out at you. You're like, oh, I'm a bad kid. I'm bad. You know, or they tell you you're bad. And it's like you don't have the tools or the ability to reason that out and understand it differently when you're young. So that just becomes who you think you are. Well, I'm a bad kid, so I'm just going to ditch school now. Or, you know, of course, I expect my parents to be this way. So that, those are just things that I'm really mindful of in, in raising kids, knowing that I'm not perfect. And, you know, we, we think we want to be perfect parents, but then, you know, we, we might bring out traits that we disliked about our own parents that you see. Like, I don't know if you ever had this experience where I'm like, oh, I'm totally my mom right now. I'm totally my dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah. I thought I said I would never do that. And now I'm doing the thing I thought I would never do. Yeah, no, it's, it's totally fascinating. And, um, by the way, just because you, you did mention it, I was going to tell you earlier in the interview that you actually strike me as one of the most calm people I've ever met. Um, and I, since your your work is like therapy and helping people, that's it seems incredibly valuable. So you do uh, you are that person and you do come across that way. I was more interested that like when you hear someone talk about where their family, what their family was like and where they grew up, you can kind of see like, oh, so you either reacted to that or you didn't react to it or you reacted this way and you pivoted. But um Anyway, I, I've loved all your answers, and uh, we are running out of time, but I always give my guests uh, just kind of like the floor at the end of the interview just to say whatever you feel like. So what would you like to say? Um, not to lose not to lose space in, in the worst parts of sometimes that you feel like things can't get better, um, and to really just give yourself some grace and some time. And when you feel like things really can't get better, you feel like there's just fire in you or you you have to jump that somebody else understands and that they care and that you can completely change how you feel and how you think about that same situation by just talking to somebody about it. And that's why therapy is so helpful. And then I know there's a lot of stigma to it um, or there can be, or you feel just so set in your ways that like, no, nobody can help me. Like I'm damaged goods. And, and it really can be an amazing transformation just to, just to take some time to explore it, to examine it. So to do yourself, you know, a solid and, you know, talk about the harder things, which, which really makes you kind of a, a hero because it's so hard to face the scariest things and talk about it. Wow. Yeah, that's very well said. And uh, again, thank you so much. Um, I feel like I had like a little mini therapy session with you because uh, as you were talking about all these things, my, my brain's going off a million miles a second. And I'm really thinking a lot about like the intersections now of like my personal trauma, my childhood trauma, my psyche, my brain, and then also this like weird idea of a soul, which I totally believe in and, and feel at times. So 
Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Um, and thank you for the work you do and for helping not only people, but animals, as people can see in the bio and what you spoke about. So uh, you're an awesome person and you're helping the cause that I believe in, which is just being a good human on Earth. So to all of our listeners, thank you again for checking in to another episode of Coffin Talk. Thank you again to Denali. Uh, check us out. Give us a good review and subscribe. Maybe tell a friend. But even if you don't do any of those things, we love you and we're happy that you're listening. So thank you to everyone. Again, my name is Mike Oppenheim and this has been another episode of Coffin Talk. We will see you soon. And you see that I do and I see that you see me And I see you hear this tune And I feel that you're near me And I sing you while the moon And then I see that you see me And I see you hear this tune And I feel that you're near me And I sing you out my